one of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is engineer John Coniberti. First of all, let's talk about something brand new on Spotify. It's called their Discovery Mode Tool. This is really controversial in that it lets a label or an artist identify a single track and then have it prioritized. That means that the track will then play in listeners' personalized autoplay or radio feeds. Now, you don't pay anything up front for this, but they do lower your royalty rate. So, in effect, you're paying for plays. They don't say how much that is because this is still an experiment. Now, Spotify claims that it drives 16 billion artist discoveries every month. That sounds like a huge amount. But when you figure that they have 320 million monthly users, that comes down to about five new songs per month. If you prioritize one of your tracks, that could be one of them. But that being said, it doesn't guarantee that that's going to happen. The song has to perform well or it's going to be pulled back. Are you still going to be charged for that? Mm, Don't know yet. Again, no details on this. The only thing that Spotify will say is it could expand to other areas on Spotify. So right now, there's a lot of people that are up in arms about this. Not so much record labels. It's more or less individual artists. Now, Spotify says, look, we're opening this up so everybody's on a level playing field. It costs you and Universal Music, for an example, exactly the same amount of money to do this. The only difference is Universal Music probably has a superstar that's going to prioritize, which means that that will be the track that will be fed out rather than your track. Well, maybe that won't be the case. We'll have to see how this plays out. Anyway, check out Spotify's Discovery Mode tool. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, as you probably know, drive-in concerts are kind of the rage these days because it's pretty much the only thing that's filling in for a real concert besides what we see online. Now, obviously, if you're in your car and you're listening to some real people on stage, it's one step closer to normality. Even then, it's still not quite the same. And one of the big things about this is the audio. And if you're like me, you probably wondered, how does all this work? Well, front of house engineer Michael Lawrence did a study that was published on ProSound Web that looked into this. Now, if you remember back to the old drive-in days. What you had was you'd pull up next to a pole that had a speaker on it, you would attach it to your window, and usually the audio was marginal at best. Now, everyone sort of thought that what would happen is we'd have short-range FM transmission, so you could hear what was going on at the drive-in concert over your sound system in your car. For legal reasons, that's not possible. The FCC was not going to let that happen. So, what they end up doing is setting up a sound system just like in a concert. So how do you hear it the best? How many windows in your car do you have to turn down in order for this to work? 
Well, Michael Lawrence tried a lot of different things, and he found out that if you just put the passenger window down, it wasn't all that good. If you put both front windows down, it sounded pretty reasonable. And no matter how many other windows you had in your vehicle, it didn't improve after those front two windows. What did happen, though, is if you have a sunroof and you open it up, you got a boost at about 300 cycles. It turns out that this is the same for just about all vehicles. So one vehicle doesn't really take precedence over another one in terms of audio quality. So at first they're doing this with just a single car listening to the drive-in concert. And then they found when they got more cars around it, there was actually a boost at about 6.4K because of the reflections off the sides of all the cars. So finally what they decided was there was too much low end. So they had to reduce the subs by 6 to 9 dB. And then if there was any high frequency roll off, they also had to decrease that as well because they're getting that already from the front windows of most cars. The bottom line is if you do go to a drive-in concert, there has been a lot of thought into what is going to be the best experience for the concert goers. And you can rest assured that it's probably going to be reasonably good sounding. My guest this week is engineer John Cunaberti, who began his music career as a drummer in Eddie Money's first band, transitioned to mixing monitors for Stevie Wonder, and eventually became chief engineer at San Francisco's famed Hyde Street Studios. It was there that John engineered a long line of seminal records for Bay artists like Joe Satriani and the Dead Kennedys, and eventually went on to work on projects for Sammy Hagar, P.J. Harvey, the Neville Brothers, and many others. John eventually transitioned into mastering, where he's done award-winning projects for Tracy Chapman, Sound Tribe Sector 9, Thomas Stolby, Aaron Neville, Jesse Colin Young, The Grateful Dead, and many more. He's also the inventor of the first commercially available reamping device called Reamp, and is the creator of the One Mic Minimalist recording series on YouTube. During the interview, we talked about recording during the days of San Francisco punk, making the transition into mastering, coming up with the reamp box, his one mic series recording a band with just one microphone, and much more. I spoke with John via Zoom from his home in the San Francisco Bay Area. Let's go to the very, very beginning of when you got in the music business. Well, you've heard this story. I've heard it on your show a number of times. Ed Sullivan, the Beatles, you know, I was a, I was young, but when I saw Ringo up there, I said, you know, I think I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, you went to school the next day and, you know, started growing my hair long and I started calling myself a, a musician. <laughs> even though I hadn't learned to play anything at that point. So, you know, and you, you know the story. You, you talk your parents into buying you, uh, in my case, drums, and you, um, you know, morph into a bunch of different garage bands. And if you stick with it, uh, you eventually become a bar band. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, the bar band led me to uh, uh, meet... Um, who later became Eddie Money, but his name was Eddie Mahoney. Funny thing, let me stop you for a second. I'm sorry, yeah. but, but Eddie Mahoney, so he was a sax player in a band in New Jersey that used to open for my band in bars. Well, then you know what a wise-ass he was. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, but he had a wonderful voice. Um, he was he was he was from New York, and you know this was all taking place in Berkeley, California, where I lived. And you know he was he was kind of almost exotic in the sense that he spoke different and acted different, and he, and he brought some friends with him um, from the East Coast. Um, but he could really sing. And we were in a band. We called it the Rockets, not to be confused with the Detroit Rockets. Um, this was around 1971. And um, we got on the radar with um, an engineer, a staff engineer from CBS Records uh, here in San Francisco. And he took us into a studio and started cutting demos. Now, unfortunately, those demos never uh, got us a record deal. Um, and then, of course, Eddie, four or five years later, um, uh, signed uh, actually with CBS, oddly enough, as a solo artist. But uh, what happened was that was where I was introduced to being in a recording studio. And that's where I made that transition. It was there. I said, you know what? That's what I want to do. It's In a way, it's a little bit like watching Ringo is. You know, it was 10 years later or more, it's 15 years later. And I said, wow, you know, I can do that, you know? Yeah. So that was the beginning of my engineering career in my mind. Um, it still took another 10 years of hard work before I had a record in my hand that I was proud of. I did a lot of live sound to supplement my income and work my way sort of up the, the food chain, if you will. You worked with Stevie Wonder, didn't you? Yeah, I was um, a, a member of a um, live sound uh, company here in the Bay Area that had developed a very sophisticated onstage monitoring system, uh, which was a bit unusual for the early 70s. Uh, onstage monitoring was had not really completely taken over yet. And we had a Midas console, and we had some a pretty sophisticated system. And TFA out of London was hired on to handle Stevie's live concert sound for, I believe it was the Secret Life of the Plants uh, tour. And they asked um, us to supply them the onstage monitoring system because uh, they just didn't really have one at that time that was as sophisticated. So I went along with the gear and I ended up on the tour and working uh, with, the, uh, with the band. I have uh, a couple of good friends that worked with Stevie for a long time, later on in his career, mm -hmm. and uh, they have you know really great stories about him and and touring with them. Well, it was it was just an awesome experience to sit at this side of the stage and watch you know this genius at work night after night. Uh, you know he do two two and a half hours and it was all hits. <laughs> You know, even then, it was all hits, and uh, what a treat. Then came, if I'm not mistaken, the Dead Kennedys, right? Yeah, it was um, somewhat, there was uh, some parallel there, again, because I couldn't make really enough money as a recording engineer. I was supplementing most of my time by being on the road and, and doing live sound, live mixing, uh, primarily. But I met the Dick Kennedys after my friend and I built an eight-track studio here in town, and they showed up, and you know I started working with them, and that led on to 
uh, eventually to do three albums with them uh, over, over the course of the next uh, three or four years. What was really interesting is there was kind of a unique punk scene that was growing out of the Bay Area. And it sounds like you were right in the middle of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There was a ground, there was a club uh, called the Mabuhe that fostered and encouraged and showcased a lot of the, the you know, punk acts uh, here in town. So it was a, um, you know, a place uh, to go and hear and see and meet and perform uh, an incubator, if you will, for, for punk music. And so the, uh, the Dead Kennedys had their own record label called uh, Alternative Tentacles. And then through that, um, I was hired on to do other acts on uh, for their label. And, and, um, and then for other acts uh, also in the, in the Bay area, the, you know, I, I, I'd quickly got out of the eight track studio and moved to a more sophisticated studio called Hyde street studios in San Francisco that, uh, was a formal, uh, a former, um, Wally Hyders. Wally Hyders had just closed out of the city and, uh, these three other, uh, daring individuals took the place over and, and kind of filled it with a lot of used and broken recording equipment. So that was really where I learned how to, um, uh, make records, uh, quickly and fix recording equipment and all the skills one, uh, was, you know, was going to need, uh, for the next 30 years of my life. I mean, th there's so much I learned by being thrown into that situation. From the punk scene, which is one way of recording, everything is fairly quick and dirty. Yeah. And then you go to Joe Satriani. The complete opposite. Complete opposite, <laughs> yes. And they were, ha again, they were happening simultaneously. Ah, okay. I would do, um, you know, the Dead Kennedys had a budget uh, because they had a record label. And so they would work like, you know, normal hours. And then I would work with Joe late at night on a budget. And I had known Joe prior to doing his solo work because I was doing live sound for his band, The Squares. And that's where we met. Joe was the, really the opposite in, in the process of, of making a record. Very systematic, one track at a time very organized, where the Dead Kennedys were basically a live act, at least for the first couple of albums. The first album, for sure, it was more of a live presentation. As they became more adventurous, then, of course, the recording sessions became longer and, and more involved and more overdubbing and more produced. But yeah, I, I was doing essentially both of those acts at the same time. Satriani... It's surfing with the alien, right? That's mm -hmm. the record. That was on a very small budget, wasn't it? Yeah, it's about twenty-five thousand dollar budget. Wow. Yeah, and, and for us, that was good. I mean, that was pretty good. The 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 first record we did that actually got him the record deal with um, Relativity Records, we did on his credit card for like four or five thousand dollars. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, late at night because I was managing the studio at the time, and I'd I'd be working during the day, and then Joe would come in at seven eight o'clock, and we'd work for four or five hours until I got too tired. And you know, I I he was paying twenty five bucks an hour for studio time, and 
you know, we stretched it out over the over a course of a month or so, and we got the record done. And Surfing with the Alien wasn't all that much different as far as um, workflow. And, uh, you know, but, you know, we, we could be a little bit more indulgent and we were able to, you know, rent some gear and, you know, bring some other people in for, for a few things. Yeah. So you were recording for a long time and mixing for a long time and, and now you had a Grammy nomination, some really good credits, but then you decided to kind of make a left turn and get into mastering. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah, I think that reinventing my career happened a number of times. You know, I, I'd always loved doing live sound, so that was always a kind of a part of, you know, my career. And then the, all the studio work I did, you know, which, which is what brought a lot of attention to me. And then the success with Joe certainly opened the door for me. But, you know, I love uh, the technology, but I also love the process of making records and, and, and working one-on-one -on -one with recording artists. And so I think what happens is that in my case, I, because of my success with Joe, I became a, a bit typecasted as, as, you know, the guitar guy, you know, and even though that was, that only probably made up, you know, 10% of my discography, that's what people thought of, of me, but I love music. I mean, I love all kinds of music. And so I had attended probably every mastering session for every record I ever mixed. All of Joe's records were mastered by Bernie Grumman. One was uh, uh, George Marino and Bob Ludwig. I mean, these are my mentors. And I sat there with them and I watched them master these records, you know, dozens and dozens of them. And it's, it's funny now that I think about it, like Ringo and like the guys in the studio when I first went in, into one, at one point I sat back and I said, you know, I think I can do this. <laughs> I think I can do what they're doing. And um, there was a studio, uh, a mastering studio in San Francisco called Rocket, and it catered to a lot of the local acts. And they were very, very, very busy, but they decided that they wanted to go out of business or diversify into video or something. So I went to the plant recording studios that was in fully operation at the time. And I went to the owner, uh, Arnie Frager, and I said, have you ever thought about opening a mastering studio? And he goes, well, yeah, but it's, you know, it's about the guy. It's not about the gear. And I said, well, there's an engineer over at Rocket. His name is Michael Romanowski. He's very experienced. And I would like to get together with him and open a mastering studio here at the plant. And he says, well, you know, put together a business plan. And so I went home and I put together a business plan. Now, I don't think he thought I would, but I did. And it looked, it looked pretty good on paper because Rocket was doing really quite well. There was Michael and I think two other engineers, Paul Stubblebine being one of them that mm. was working out of the place. So I go to Michael and I says, I don't know if you know it or not, but they're about to close Rocket. You're going to be out of a job. <laughs> And he goes, no, I didn't know. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, 
so I said, well, listen, here's the good news. The good news is, is that we can build a mastering studio at the plant in Sausalito. And we can hit the ground running, uh, assuming I can get Rocket's Rolodex. If I can get their clients, we can just hit the ground running. We'll, we'll have a really beautiful room uh, built. So Arnie agreed. He agreed to the business plan. And we built a room that cost us about, oh, $200,000. I mean, it was a first-class mastering uh, suite. And we literally hit the ground running because Rocket had closed and we had clients. Now, I, had, I didn't have any real experience as a mastering engineer, but I learned, and I learned quickly. Eventually, after about three years, I think uh, Michael left to go pers pursue some other things, and I was left uh, with the entire business, and I developed my skills at mastering. And uh, I was there for eight years until the entire facility uh, had to close. Um, and, and, and ironically, it wasn't because of mastering. It was just because of the, there was three other rooms that were getting wiped out by, you know, file sharing and, and you know, what we called at the time the Napster attack and the lack of bookings. So seeing the... Um, Writing on the wall, I decided that I would move the mastering business to my home in Oakland. So I took over part of my house <laughs> and, uh, you know, did whatever I could do to make it work. And there's been no looking back. I've, you know, I love it. I love working out of my own home now. Okay. So since you started with not much experience... To where you are now, how long did it take you before you felt that, yeah, I think I have my arms around this. I think, I think I'm pretty good at this. Uh, mastering? Yeah. Well, I dabbled in it as a mix engineer. You know, you start to dabble with, you know, um, taking your mixes and doing some stuff to sweetening them up before you send them to the clients. And so I was already being a pseudo mastering engineer, if you will. I had one of the very first Pro Tools rigs. So I was already uh, printing mixes to digital and editing and sequencing. So a lot of it, I was already uh, prepared for it. I, and I understood this, the, the workflow, so to speak. But it probably took a solid year of um, sitting between those speakers and making those uh, critical decisions before I felt comfortable. The feedback from my clients was fine. Everybody seemed to uh, like what I was doing. And I think that's just because I had developed, you know, good ears from, you know, 30 years of making records, you know, because a lot of that comes into play. Yeah. And, you know, you know where the mixes leave off and mastering begins. So, and then a lot of the records I was making as a mix engineer, I was mastering myself. So I was able to kind of like walk, uh, you know, the line, uh, uh, both sides of that a little bit to, to go, well, I can see now why I can't really fix this in mastering. It's really a mix issue. And then I would notice that there were things I just couldn't do in a mix that I could actually do in a mastering setting. So it was actually... Um, uh, quite an adventure that first year or so to to really get my to really get oriented, uh, and and oddly enough, I was still 
producing and engineering records at the time. Mm. So I, I was actually still doing both. And in fact, I still do both. I've, ne I've never given up one for the other, ever. It's really unusual. Yeah, that's what people tell me. But I, I feel very comfortable with both hats on. When you moved from the plant to your house, studio in your house, there was obviously an acoustic change. How long did it take you to kind of get your arms around that? Well, one thing I learned as a mix engineer is that you have to learn your speakers, right? I mean, no matter, you know, and and as as an engineer who who traveled and went to different studios, you know, you walk into rooms and they're all, the studios are always sound different. The speakers that might be in front of you um, are going to sound different. They may even be speakers you're familiar with, but but because of the the room itself, they sound different. So I was already pretty accustomed to learning a system, learning a speaker, learning an environment. I did do all the right things as far as acoustic treatment to the room. And I brought a guy in to tune my room. So the same guy that tuned my room uh, at, the, at the plant in Sausalito, I had him come over and, um, you know, tune my room with EQ in a similar way. Now, of course, it wasn't a ground up $200,000 room, but I got it really close. I got it close enough where I felt confident in what I was doing. So uh, the transition was, uh, was, was more awkward in the fact that I wasn't leaving the house in the morning and going to work and focused on work and then coming home and having a home life, right? I mean, I think the, the transition of being home all day and the sort of distractions of life that, you know, are here at home that you just don't have at work. I think that was probably more difficult for me than, than acoustics. <laughs> You're experiencing that, what everybody's experiencing right now, but it was a long time ago for you. You're, you're yeah, experiencing it, that. Yeah. I, I can sympathize with people and what they're going through right now for sure. But for me, the, the, the pandemic has had uh, little or no effect on me um, uh, with, as far as my workflow and, and what I do. Mm. Yeah. Tell me about reamping. You were the first one to come up with that idea, as far as I know, anyway, and you even got a patent for it, right? Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm not going to say I was the first one to do it because I think a lot of people were taking uh, signals from uh, the tape recorder uh, because this is certainly pre-digital and feeding it back into other things guitar amplifiers or leslie speakers or you know whatever it was some to to, to create to create some kind of effect the problem was is that there was no commercially available interface box for that specific process you know we have direct boxes that have a specific you know it's a tool that is used for you know, direct injection from a guitar into a recording console, mic pre or whatever. And those things have been around forever, but we never had a commercially available box that would allow, you know, line level plus four signals out of a Studer tape recorder, for instance, back into a guitar amplifier with the, with the, with the correct uh, gain and impedance and, and uh, you know, guaranteed flat frequency response. What 
I used to do back in the day was to take a passive direct box and plug it in backwards with some sex change cables. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it kind of worked. It, it dropped the gain down to a more manageable level, but the frequency response was off. So I was one of those guys that was in the trenches and I saw the need. I, and I said, I said to myself, why isn't there a box that can do this? I mean, wouldn't, isn't that something that everyone would want? <laughs> so I took it upon myself to develop one. It took, you know, I went through three or four prototypes and um, you know, worked with a, um, you know, a tech that is smarter with electronics than I am. I, I just said, listen, this is what I want to do. How do we make that happen? And I'll give you as much money as you need to, to build me the prototypes. So we eventually got got to one where I could plug um, plug it into a guitar amplifier and feed it from a, a tape recorder with a direct guitar signal on it. You could not tell the difference between that and the guy actually plugged into the guitar amplifier because that's the way I ran test is I actually would do it all there with the guy with the guitar. And I got it to a point where we couldn't tell the difference. And I said, well, that's the box. Then, then that's the right transformer. That's the right gain stage. Those are the right connectors. That's the right whatever that you know we've got. And so, but I never thought about making it commercially available. I mean, I just wanted it for me. <laughs> so I went about making records with the damn thing. And then, you know, the word got out. Engineers started borrowing it. And then studios started seeing them. And then I built five and then I built 10 Then I built 50, which was a big deal because I had to borrow money. And, you know, it was, it was you know, I'm a, I'm a full-time recording engineer. I wasn't into manufacturing. <laughs> you know, John, I went through much the same thing, not quite in the scale. When I was playing in clubs back in New Jersey, there was a need for a direct box. And this is before there, there was any commercial direct boxes. And I happened to see the schematic, the original schematic from Dean Jensen and REP. So I built one. And then every band that saw this wanted one. So the next thing you know, I'm drilling boxes and, you know, manually doing all this stuff, charging not nearly enough for it when it was all said and done. So it got to the point where it's like, well, wait a second. Am I a player or I'm a manufacturer? Well, I'm a player. So I gave it up. But I empathize with what you went through because, you know, it's not a small step to go from, well, just making a few here and there to, well, let's make a bunch of them and try to sell them. Right. Uh, that is such a great story. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, I, I assumed it because like something like a direct box, it's a tool, it's a need. A, a need came up. Somebody at some point, and now I know, <laughs> you know, said, why isn't there a box that can do this? And, and, it's had a, that's a that's a great story. I I didn't know that I didn't know that about you. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, Dean Jensen came up with the original idea, and I don't quite recall where that came from. But he drew the schematic, and it was freely available to everybody. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, from what I know, there was no real schematic for uh, reamp, but it's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, you don't have to be electronic, yeah, yeah, electronic right. genius to, to go, well, we just want to do this in reverse. It's, it's you know, it's a very simple uh, uh, interface. And, you know, when you look at a recording console, it has 
a thousand interfaces in it, you know, gain stages, you know, transformers, we boost it up, we take it down, but, you know, we adjust it, we, you know, there's all these things. It's there, the technology was there, just that nobody had done it. Yeah. And when I started building them and decided that, well, if I could build a hundred of these, I could make enough money to pay for them and, you know, maybe have enough money left over to build 200, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, but unfortunately the cost of me building them was, was staggering. Yeah. And, um, you know, because when you go buy, you know, a hundred transformers, you're not getting a, any huge break. You have to get into the thousands before you were, you know, so I, it, it, you know, it, it took time and energy and, and money to, to maintain that. Uh, you mentioned the patent. It was actually John LeGrew with Millennia Media who encouraged me to get a patent. It wasn't something I thought about. And he goes, you know, this is a brilliant idea. As soon as some big company sees it, they're going to just knock this thing off in China and you're going to be out of business. And I went, oh, man, I don't want that to happen. <laughs> you know, I'm out 20 grand. <laughs> so I went ahead and I applied. I didn't think I'd get the patent, to be honest. Uh, I just thought this is way too simple of a design and it's kind of um, what they call uh, obvious art or, and I figured that, that there was prior art to it. I just figured that somebody else had already, you know, there's paper somewhere that says that somebody already invented this. But he said, if you can get patent pending, in other words, apply for a patent, get a number, you can put patent pending on the device and uh, that'll kind of keep people away for a while. Yeah. And it did. I mean, I made reamps for five or six years and sold, I don't know, a couple thousand of them before the first knockoff showed up. And in that case, I had to go to them and say, hey, you know, I actually have this patent pending, but I want to encourage people to, to do this. So let's just work it out. And I offered, I offered to uh, license it. If I were to get the patent, I said, I'll license this thing for uh, for you for a dollar a year. <laughs> Such a deal. Uh, yeah, that was a deal. Yeah. Then about five or six years later, I get the notice that I'd gotten the patent. And, I, and it kind of blew my mind. I mean, I thought, really? Nobody's come up with this? <laughs> wow. Nobody, I'm the only guy I actually thought about this. And, and so I ended up getting it. And, you know, it served its purpose. I think that the, the name REAMP probably served uh, more of a purpose because it was such a good name for what it did. And eventually when Radial offered me a deal I couldn't turn down uh, for, for the patent and for the name, that was basically what he told me. He says, you know, what we really want is the name. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> They, you know, they already had in the works a uh, an active a reamp device that they were licensing from me. So it was uh, 17 years um, I had it, and I sold many thousands of them. And I, and quite honestly, when I first started, people told me I was crazy. Hmm. It really did. I mean, now it's kind of a household thing. I mean, I think everybody knows what it is and, and understands the process. Yeah. But I gave those to engineers. I gave them away. Um, and people got, well, I, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, 
I don't, I don't even know how to use it. You know, I mean, big engineers, names I won't mention. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, one name I'll mention, Alan Sides. Oh, <laughs> who, okay. And if you know Alan, you, you would understand why. Yeah, he said, I, I don't have any use for this. I get it right the first time. <laughs> and I said, well, I, I said, Alan, you know, a lot of us don't get it right the first time. <laughs> so, you know, I'm a big fan of his work. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he sent it back to me with a the, with the nice note. <laughs> okay, let's talk about what I really want to talk about, and that's one mic. Oh, sure. Yeah. The one mic series is really fantastic, I have to say, where you record everything with one stereo microphone, and the balance is so wonderful, and the sound is awesome. It's a joy to listen to. Oh, thank you. But in speaking with you and understanding your roots in live sound and understanding your roots in the punk movement where everything was pretty much based around, let's do this right the first time, so to speak, I could see why why you'd want to do something like this. There's probably a, a number of things at play. Uh, one is probably a more universal reason, which I'm sure you have felt and experienced, which is the frustration of how records are made now. Um, this idea that, you know, you come into a studio and everything is close mic everything goes to its separate track. There's a, a, you know, a safety net that is just in, implicit. You know, everybody knows about the fact that if you mess up, you can fix it. And records are just pushed through that process of safety. And, you know, and, it, and it's, um, you know, a lot of times, it works, but a lot of times it doesn't because the con the conversation among the musicians in the room gets altered, or broken, or destroyed by isolation. And as somebody who who grew up in live sound, and you know, like I mentioned, standing by the side of the stage and watching Stevie Wonder and these brilliant musicians, that brought such joy to my life that I thought, you know, that's for me as an engineer where it's at is is that and it's funny even then even when we started recording live we still dragged the stuff into the studio and started messing with it i mean we, you know it's almost like we can't help ourselves you know there you know this 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 need to have a perfection in, in, in it all and so that was part of it the, the sense of frustration and how long a lot of these records I've been working on take. And, and, and I don't want to say there were, there were self-indulgent so much as they were misguided. Well, okay, yeah. Okay. Sure. Well, we could, we can say that. Well, you know, there's a, there's an entire generation of people who have only recorded in a multi-track environment. You know, when they first started recording, they went in and they got headphones put on them and they had a microphone stuck in their amp that's in a closet and they were always separated from it. They, they didn't, nobody ever told them they, that it could, it could be done differently. Right. So that was part of it. The other one was boredom and curiosity as a, as a, rec as a recording engineer, you know, what else can I do? What can I do as a recording engineer that no one's done before or, you know, something like that. And I was working with the uh, AEA R88 stereo mic in a conventional setting. And one day I said to the band, I said, 
you know, I'd like to set this microphone up in the middle of the room for this one song and have you all just sit around the microphone and I'll move you in and out and around and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll just, just your positions for panning and I'll, I'll adjust everything, but no headphones will cut, will cut the whole thing live. And they, you know, they said, sure, fine. You know, why not? And I, I didn't know what I was going to get. So I put them around the mic in a way that I thought was going to work. I didn't know. And I went into the control room and I turned up the volume and they started performing. And I went, wow, uh, that actually sounds pretty good. So over the, over the course of the next hour or so, I, I kept refining it, moving people in and out, spacing the guitars out a little bit, adding effects to their instruments uh, through you know, their stomp boxes and stuff. And I really tried to re uh, create a multi-track recording, something that sounds like a multi-track recording, uh, you know, around the one stereo microphone. And because the R88 is a ribbon microphone, it has this wonderful advantage of being able to record two stereo fields, one on one side of the microphone and one on the other. So it gives me more, um, you know, real estate, if you will, to position the amplifiers and the people because it's critical uh, their distance from the mic. And then of course you have to think about panning, right? Right. So I just continued to refine it and I recorded the whole session with my iPhone. I went out and I just walked around with my iPhone and I recorded them doing one song. Next day I posted it on YouTube or on Facebook or something and people flipped out. They said, this is, this is amazing. Uh, we love this. And the musicians were were telling me, "Hey, this is like better than our record." <laughs> and I was going, "Now wait a minute. That's not you know. This was just an experiment to see if it can be done." I'm not saying this is you know you should replace the way you make records with this process, but it's but it's kind of cool and, and and it's fun. And that led to do another one and another one and another one. And then I started sticking my neck out with different artists, with different types of uh, material and different types of instrumentations. And then I started going to other studios to try to do it, where you're in completely different in environments. And, you know, to date, I've done about 35 of them, uh, 35 songs. I, I usually have the artists do two songs. So I've worked with maybe 15 bands in five or six different studios. And, you know, some of them are certainly more successful than others. I think you can, you can almost feel and sense the issue, you know, that the problems that the room might be presenting or the instrumentation might be presenting for this particular process. But, it's, but I've highly refined it. I mean, I've really, I think I've figured it out how to do it. But I'm constantly surprised by the outcome. One of the things I noticed was uh, on some of the videos, you're measuring the distance from the microphone. Is that because you've refined it to a point where you kind of know where things ought to be before you even start? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I learned that um, if you, a small combo amplifier uh, about seven feet away on a stool, because it has to be up high, because uh, the, the nature of the ribbon microphone, if, if the amp is too low, it's going to be picked up by the bottom uh, ribbon and force it to one side. Mm. See, okay. so um, I learned that I had to have the amps up at a certain height 
And I could get away with having him back as far as about seven feet where it still feels close. You know, it's still, it doesn't sound, of course, it kind of, well, obviously it's going to depend on the room, but it still felt like a record. It felt like a, a close mic guitar with just a little bit of reverb on it. Um, so that was a formula I'd figured out. And then, you know, where you posi- position the, the singers, those are other things. But there were other refinements, like once, like in post-production, like when, when I get these recordings back, they're pretty rough and they, they need to be mastered, you know, in, a tr- in the traditional sets with a little bit of compression, with a little bit of EQ. Um, sometimes I would take, um, uh, you know, I would, I would send a signal to a reverb on that send, I might put something um, that that would adjust, um, you know, the center channel uh, more, you know, an, an MS box, if you will, mm-hmm. and um, and so I could force more of what was in the middle into the reverb. So the so the voice sounds like it has a little bit of plate on it, but the the drums and everything else around it doesn't. So these are things that I finally figured out you know, how to, how to refine it. Because my goal always was, can I make a one mic recording that sounds like a multi-track recording? You know, if I just play it for somebody, would they just assume that it was, you know, 25 microphones? Can I actually do that? You've accomplished that. Definitely. No, thank you. You know, the one thing you just touched on at the reverb, considering that some of the rooms that you're working with, they're relatively dry what did you use? Because that's a critical part of the sound, especially on the vocal. What are you using? Um, I was using the UAD, Universal Audio 140 plate. It's still sort of my go-to vocal uh, reverb. And I would use the, um, yeah, on the synth, you know, I mentioned the MS control. Yeah. I was using that the Bobcats um, Universal Audio I can't remember what it's called, the ambient just adjustment. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know which one you Stereo thingy. Yeah. But it has an MS control, so I can back off the sides, turn up the mid, and force that into the reverb. And and just a bit, not not a lot, but but just a little bit. And that really starts to help make it sound more like a, a formal type of recording. Yeah. You know, I believe that, if you're going to be serious about being a recording engineer, this is the way you should start. Oh, I did it. Oh, I did it all backwards. <laughs> you did it backwards, but really, when you think about it, it's like, well, yeah, let's get this part of it right first, and then then we can refine it. Yeah. Well, I would recommend it. Since the videos have been out and people have watched them, I don't think a month goes by where somebody doesn't send me their version of one. You know, hey, what do you think? And and is you know whatever. And you know, some of them, some of them are pretty good. You know, they obviously haven't put in the thousand hours that I've put in, but I can hear the, the you know the success of it. You know, I can I can go and and some uh, there was one. God, I wish I could remember what it was that I thought. Oh, they hit it. They figured it out. And I encourage it. I mean, anytime anybody writes me and asks me about what I do and how I do it, I'm, I'm totally into telling them about it, you know, and how to do it. It's not some, you know, I'm not making any money with it. All those videos cost me money. I have to pay for all of it. 
Uh, the artist shows up, they do their music, they retain all the rights to the music. I retain the rights to the videos, but you know, it's <laughs> it's streaming. How much money is that? Yeah. So I mean, I I'm the one. It's it's a pet project of mine, and it's and it's for the love of doing it. And I get a lot out of it because I I, I really the artists I pick. Um, I really find people that that can really do it. You know, not everybody can do it. No kidding. And, and I find uh, artists that that whose instrumentation and their ability to sing are oriented for for this process. There's you know, obviously there's some kinds of acts and bands that this this is absolutely would not work. Yeah. You know, so I tend to be very selective about uh, how I how I do it. You know, my one of my biggest inspirations for doing it was a was when I was reading the um, a book about um, Sam Phillips and how he recorded in the fifties. You know, Elvis on one side of the mic with his acoustic guitar, and then the band set up on the other side of the microphone. You know, balancing themselves, and that was how those early records were made. And so, when I had the opportunity to actually go to Sun Studio, I did. And I also went to Muscle Shoals on that same trip, but I found myself in Sun Studios with a ribbon microphone, but this time a stereo microphone and, uh, you know, a millennia uh, preamplifier recording to digital, right? So basically I'm doing exactly what Sam Phillips did, but I'm just doing it with modern gear. Yeah. And I, it was a thrill of my life. I mean, I've been in a lot of great studios and I've made a lot of really cool records. But being in that room doing that was, was one of the high points of my life. I have a good Sam Phillips story. When I first moved to Los Angeles, I needed a job. So I got a job as a salesman at Everything Audio, if you remember that, way back when. Yeah. And I was young and didn't know exactly how the whole audio sales thing worked. So there was a trade show after I was hired. I think it was in Nashville. And we were an Atari dealer, and I was told, stay close to the Atari booth so maybe you can get some sales. So I was standing in the Atari booth, and a guy came up to me with a big, long beard, and I began to tell him about the MTR-90. And I went on and on and on for about 40 minutes. And at the end, the guy gave me his card and said, if you're ever in Memphis, come by and see me. And it was Sam Phillips. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea who he was until I looked at his card. Did you take him up on it? Did you go? That's what I was going to say. The worst part about it was I had the card in my wallet, and shortly afterwards, it was stolen. My wallet was stolen. So, uh, no, I didn't, unfortunately. What a guy. Yeah. His story is incredible. I, I, I would recommend anybody to just read the book. Uh, you know, one thing I want to point out about the One Mic series is the video aspect of it. Which is wonderful. He did a great job. Yeah, well, the idea was, well, there's two things going on there. One is that I didn't think anybody would believe me if I told them that this was all recorded with one microphone. So one of the reasons why I have a one, one camera shot, continuous shot, was to, was to prove to people that this was actually this band in this room recording this song in one full, complete take. Uh, otherwise, I was worried that people were, were going to go, well, I don't know. You probably did some overdubs. Yeah, right. There's probably, that guitar's probably got a direct, you know, he's got some stuff going on there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and, and the other thing was, was that aesthetically, I thought that 
I wanted to invite people into the control room, you know, the place where I have lived and where you have lived, where we have witnessed this magic take place. If I can have, because if you invite a friend to a studio and there's a multi-track recording going, going on, it can be like the most boring thing ever. God, I was there for six hours and it was just this one guitar player sitting <laughs> in the corner playing this guitar solo like 500 times. I, I don't know how you can do what you do. <laughs> yeah. But I have witnessed, and so have you, being in the studio where a complete take goes down and it's absolutely magic. And you look around, you're like, God, it's, it's like they did that for me. Yeah. I mean, nobody witnessed it except for me. And I thought, maybe there's an opportunity to share this, you know? So I thought, okay, a one person perspective, the camera will move around the room. Like maybe I would, if I was walking around the room while they were rehearsing or were actually performing a, a recording. And I'll, I'll give that to, I'll give that to the audience so they can have that. And it, it's not cheap. I mean, you notice some of these videos, uh, you know, I want it to look good. Yeah, yeah. You know, I you can't just turn on the fluorescent lights and walk around with an iPhone. I, yeah. you know, I had to go to the trouble of getting, you know, proper lighting for a lot of these and and, and having Nathaniel Cofield, uh, Cofield actually shoot the videos for me because, you know, he's a skilled uh, videographer. But I said to him, he says, well, I'm going to put a camera here. Yeah. I, put a camera. <laughs> I, I said, no, 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 no. I said, this is a dance. And the reason why I'm hiring you is because you're a musician. Yeah. And, and you know that you need to move here for four bars and then move over here for six bars. And then during the bridge, you're going to pull back where everybody sings. And he goes, oh, okay, I get it. And it was a ballet. It's a dance. It's, 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 a, it's his performance also. Yeah. So I, I wanted to... Um, add that to it's not just an audio program it's it's actually a visual experience too it's really very very cool i encourage everybody to go take a look and i'm going to make sure that we have uh lots of links and things like that oh cool thank you bobby i appreciate it yeah last question john what's the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you Ooh. um so many people, so much advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think I, I, I can only speak for myself. For me, business has a set of rules to it that I abide by. It, it's, you know, it's, it's integrity. It's keeping your word. It's showing up on time, not overcharging, uh, paying your bills, paying your taxes, being respectful, understanding other people's hardships. Don't assume that because you're working with a wealthy client that they're going to just throw money at everything. Be respectful. And then, you know, if that's the way you approach your bit, the business part of it, the money will come. And opportunities will come because you're going to be, you know, that kind of guy. And so you'll get more gigs, probably, and get more experience. And then you'll become a better at what you do because you'll just work more. You'll work more because your business integrity is intact. Let me put it that way. Yeah. 
So I've always, my parents taught me to always keep your word, to always pay your bills. You know, I was a blue collar recording engineer for a long, 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 long time. And so I come from that world of, of uh, you know, if a job is worth doing, it's worth doing well and all the rest of it. And then there's the artistic side of, of, of our business, where I believe there's no rules, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't play by the rules. I don't make records for statues. I follow my heart when it comes to my decisions about um, how, when, and where I'm going to um, invest my time. I work for free a lot because I want to be supportive and I want to give back. I mean, I do now. I mean, obviously, when I was in my 30s, I was struggling to pay my bills. But now I'm at a stage in my life where I can um, give back a bit. So, you know, <laughs> I hear people on on podcasts, whatever, say, yeah, I, you know, you should never, you should always charge. Don't ever work for free because people will think that you're not worth anything or something like that. And I've, I always thought that was really weird. And I, because my feeling is if you're making, if, if your job is to make art, then that's what you ought to be doing. And, and, and receiving some sort of financial, you know, balance, for that, it doesn't even fit into the way I, I view the world. My feeling is if you've got the business end of it together, like I mentioned earlier, and you pursue your dreams to create art, to create great recordings, the two will come together and you'll be taken care of. That's what's happened to me. I've always, I've lived in the Bay Area. I never went to LA and said, man, I'm going to make a career. I just stayed here, maintained my reputation and my integrity. And I have more than enough work to pay my bills and to support my family and own a house and all the rest of it. I never really worried about it. But, you know, I think that early on, you have to say yes to everything. You know, I think it's really important to diversify. I've been a studio manager, been a maintenance engineer. I've been a master, you know, mastering engineer. I've been a recording engineer, did videos. I mean, I've done all kinds of stuff. And I think that's that's another another thing that one has to do if you want to be in this business is, is to diversify a bit, to survive. You can find out more about John and his One Mic series at johncunniberti.com. That's John Cunniberti, C-U-N-I-B-E-R-T-I, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter for